0: Here I am preparing yet another Zoom call with a guest. Okay. I'm recording on my end. And do I need to, kind of just set it? Setting up the mic, making sure we pressed all the right buttons. Okay. Which is funny because it really does seem like a ton of people are working through this same kind of thing. I think the ongoing pandemic fundamentally shifted the way we use technology, if not how we thought of it. Suddenly, things that happened in person weren't possible. Everything from first dates to first grade became remote. In other words, mediated by technology. And that last bit is what we're talking about with today's guest.
1: My name is Audrey Waters. I'm a writer. I write about education technology. And I'm really interested in the ways in which people talk about the future as the future of education as being this grand technological
0: project.
1: And they have for pretty much forever.
0: (laughs) From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Bijan Steven, and you are listening to Eclipsed. On this wormhole episode, Audrey Waters joins us to talk about the overlooked history of educational technology. Because that story starts way before Zoom school. That's after the break.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify.
0: Let's get to it. You know,
1: I was a tech writer for a while, and I started really becoming interested in ed tech around 2010, and I couldn't really convince my editor that anybody else cared. I could see, though, that Silicon Valley was really interested in ed tech, and I could just see that there was a huge amount of investment. Um, with people building all sorts of apps, again, that they promised was going to fix everything. And then, of course, the rise of a few pretty well-known figures who really captured the public's imagination about the ways in which computers would fix education. But I felt that, uh, I think that there's a thing with ed tech. People think that the history begins the minute that they entered the field. And so a lot of people in Silicon Valley that were new to education, that turned their attention to education... Really, it didn't know anything about the history and moved in with this sort of wonderful hubris that uh, <laughs> that these engineers seem to have, that they were the first people to ever think about using technology in the classroom. And I wanted to say, uh, no, <laughs> there's a long history.
0: When was the first teaching machine? Like, when does it begin?
1: I mean, I think... What, You know, one could look back to to teaching machines, and it just depends on how one wanted to define them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that you could look back at any number of devices throughout human history that people have built in order to facilitate teaching somebody, right? And so, like, you know, in medieval times, for example, there were sort of these very rudimentary machines that were used to help teach knights how to joust. (laughs) So, but in terms of education psychology, which Psychology in and of itself is a fairly recent science, I suppose one could say. (laughs) Um, You know, psychology is about 100 years old, and edtech really grew out of that.
0: People have been trying to automate teaching since the early 1920s, when radios arrived in American classrooms. It's probably obvious, but I'll say it anyway. These days, edtech looks wildly different. How would you define edtech now? Like, what, what does it look like today?
1: I love this question because I like to really piss off um, ed tech entrepreneurs Let's Let's do by talking about things that that they never see as ed tech, right? So ed tech is this, in many people's view, is this very narrow set of software that's used to sort of um, digital worksheets, really, mm-hmm. but used to sort of um, train, uh, train and teach kids. But I think that it's good to actually. Like expand our view. I mean, I think one of the most important, uh, valuable um, pieces of ed tech—one that you can judge a classroom by—if you walk into a classroom—is does it have a window?
0: Explain for my benefit how that is ed tech.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think it's a technology, yeah. right? But I think it—it it, it actually shapes the practices. It actually shapes the way in which. Um, one situates oneself um, in the classroom. I think that there are classrooms that are dark. There are classrooms that are purposefully built without um, natural lighting. Um, I think, you know, some, like traditionally, um, I think building designers were nervous about having windows because they didn't want children to be able to daydream and look outside. Um, So we have, you know, windows were often high up and sometimes in the one-room schoolhouse so that kids couldn't stare mm-hmm. out the window. But I think there are other things, too. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the metal detectors is a piece of ed tech. What, does the school have a metal detector? Um, does the school have air conditioning? Does the school have um, water, fount- water fountains that are <laughs> lead-free water? I mean, these are the things that um, that are actually really part of the structural the structural problems that many of our schools face that ed tech entrepreneurs don't want to talk about. They want to talk about gadgets and gizmos that I think are Fancier, um, sleeker, they have a better story around them. But really, I think the infrastructure of the classroom is a technology that we don't pay a lot of attention to and probably, I think, shapes the experience of many school children in ways that whether or not you have an iPad or you know a Chromebook doesn't. But I think for most people, when they talk about ed tech, what they really mean are the kinds of software that um, kids are doing their lessons on. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of having paper worksheets, now we have digital worksheets. Instead of having paper-based tests, we have digital tests. But I-, I like to talk about some of the other technologies that I think get ignored.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right. I think infrastructure is technology.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because within there are there obviously are some restrictions, but a teacher can, you know, rearrange the classroom. You can rearrange the chairs in a classroom, for example. So many people have been learning during the pandemic via zoom but zoom is like one of those classrooms where the chairs are bolted to the floor i mean you are stuck
0: with it what are some of the 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 bigger highlights from the history of like people trying to solve education with engineering
1: i mean i think that there, there are lots of examples and i think it's important to recognize again contrary to this idea that nobody used technology until you know the ipad came along that really that People have been using technology in the classroom for a very long time. Um, teachers have been using film in the classroom, radio, television. These all have a really long history and sometimes a fairly you know, uh, dark history, too, of, of this plan in, to replace teachers with technology. And so this is really the project of the, the 20th century. Um, you know Thomas Edison famously predicted in 1913. You know that film was poised to replace textbooks, and you can kind of see those promises or those sort of, sort of that hype repeated today. That we're you know just around the corner from having computers replace textbooks. Um, and of course Edison was literally invested in film replacing textbooks and, and many of the entrepreneurs that you hear today say these same things are also quite literally invested in a very different um, in a very different market for educational products. Right. One of the things that's funny when as I was writing this book I had this sort of really um pedantic sort of polemic in me that wanted to sort of end each paragraph with saying and this is exactly what it's like now. But often the the kinds of Promises that came with these technologies, even early technologies, you can hear echoed today. The kinds of things that Google, for example, talks about when they talk about um, using VR in the classroom, that was, that was the same kind of language that people talked about with, with film and film strips and radio. Um, you know, I think that the, the, there's a story that, uh, that many people like to tell, um, politicians like it entrepreneurs like it, that education hasn't changed in hundreds of years. You hear this a lot. Um, But of course, I think education has changed in lots of different ways. It's sometimes more subtle than one would think. But this idea that somehow classrooms are more abundant and the thing that needs to be introduced is new technology, I think is this really um, false, false promise. Thank you, thank you, Kevin.
0: This is a clip from Microsoft's 16th annual CEO summit from 2012. The speaker is talking about how the classroom hasn't changed, which is a nice idea, but the problem is that it's totally untrue. If ben
1: Franklin came back today and walked into a classroom. He'd say, "Oh yeah, that's exactly how we did it. That's exactly what we made." It's a one major sector of our lives that have not been totally transformed by the digital revolution. There are a number of ways in which classrooms have changed. And one of the important ways, I think is who's in the classroom has changed. And that that shapes what happens in the classroom. I mean, I think the American public education system was invented um, really with only a few people in mind, particularly past, you know, elementary school age. It was really an idea that only a very few number of white, probably upper middle class boys were going to continue and have education. And I think over the past couple hundred of years, we have really expanded who who we expect to see in the classroom. And that has changed, What that has changed for better and for worse, I think, with the ways in which the classroom is arranged and operated.
0: After the break, we meet the father of the original teaching machine. Welcome back. So how do you automate something like pedagogy? And how would you even measure that in the first place? There was one guy who thought he had the answers. Dr. Sidney Pressey was a professor of psychology at Ohio State University. In the 1920s, Pressey had the idea that he could build a machine to automate teaching and testing. So he put one together out of typewriter parts. The goal was to make education more efficient.
1: Standardized testing and education technology kind of emerged at the, around the same time from education psychology. And Sidney Pressey, in fact, was one of the people who was very successful in marketing early standardized testing. And of course, standardized testing grew out of intelligence testing. It has its a whole very problematic oh, yeah. history I'm, I'm... intertwined you know, with <laughs> eugenics. And I think also intertwined with this idea that's important for ed tech, that the labor of the teacher, is this feminized labor of the teacher, is something that maybe we need to have better control over, right? Teachers are too emotional, they're too subjective. Um, And so is there a way in which we can create tests so that teachers didn't really emotionally weigh in on their students when they were grading them? And that's really the origins of the multiple choice test. Um, You know, how do you sort of take out the emotion um, from this? And again, the standard or the multiple choice test is really an early 20th century technology. So Sidney Pressey was interested in automating test giving um, and test grading. So we thought, let's build a machine that can do this automatically. And he also believed that if this machine could grade tests, that it could teach. It was great. He had a lot of positive feedback. Unfortunately for Sidney Pressey, when he decided to go to market, this little event happened called the Great Depression, <laughs> uh, the stock market crash. And nobody was interested, A, in manufacturing what was a very expensive device. And really, nobody was interested in the idea of labor saving, putting teachers out of work um, school districts weren't going to be able to, could barely afford to pay teachers, let alone invest in these mechanical devices to automate teaching and testing. Right.
0: <laughs> Bless his heart. I mean, he he gave it a shot. That's about all you can ask. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to the psychologist B.F. Skinner, the guy famous for figuring out how to change animal behavior by putting them into boxes and giving them treats for completing tasks.
1: I mean, he is really the name most closely associated with teaching machines and his work, you know, his work on ed tech. My argument is, is it's really fundamental to what ed tech looks like today. I think most Contemporary education psychologists would say, oh, no, no, we don't do behaviorism anymore. We're we're cognitive scientists now. Um, we've left all that behind. But I think because Skinner was so deeply involved in building these early teaching machines, and of course, building them with behaviorism in mind, that these ideas of conditioning have been hard-coded into the technology that's been passed forward today, into computing technology. So I think EdTech is very behaviorist.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It's all operant conditioning, I guess. It is
1: all operant (laughs) conditioning. That's why we have all of these noises and gold stars and stuff. when You get a question right on, you know, Duolingo. Spend any time in Duolingo and he's like, oh,
0: yeah. Wow. Okay, that is, yeah, I guess that's a teaching machine. So this all raises the obvious question, which is like, how did teachers and students react to this stuff? When it was introduced in our classrooms,
1: one of the things I think that's important to remember is that these were really expensive. Even as teaching machines got made out of, you know, plastic, there were pilot programs in which um, students were given teaching machines. And again, much like today, I think initially students find these to be really exciting. I think some students really liked the idea of being able to work at their own pace and. Blow through the material in Algebra One, you know, in six weeks rather than a school year. Um, So, some students, I think, really enjoyed it. Some teachers, I think, really enjoyed it. Conversely, some teachers did not. um, And some students found it very dull. Some parents questioned why this innovation was being used in the classroom, too. When I was researching the book, I went on the place where one goes to buy um, old devices, I went on eBay. (laughs) And I bought myself a teaching machine from the 1960s. Um, A lot of these devices were sold for the home user um, with promises of like, get a new career in electronics. And I gotta say, this was so dull. The idea that Skinner had was um, that students would move through the lessons at the smallest possible incremental step and this would mean that ideally students wouldn't would only get questions right. Of course, because of with the operant conditioning, you want positive behavioral reinforcement. So every sort of every question was just like this minute step forward. And I made it through, I think, like thirty little step forwards in electronics, and I was like, oh my god, I can't, <laughs> I can't go on. And I think that that's what students. Recognized as well is that it was very exciting to use a new piece of technology, and then after a while, it was just became incredibly dull. Right. incredibly
0: dull. Yeah. Right, and that's and that that's one of the things that doesn't change across teaching machines. That's that's a standard right. feature.
1: <laughs> I think when we think about B. F. Skinner today, most of us I think have, <laughs> rightly so, perhaps a pretty negative i a pretty negative mm-hmm. sense of of his work. Um, but really, in in the 1960s, he was incredibly popular. I think he was on, you know, the cover of Time magazine. He would be on the Dick Cavett show. This was a this was a popular a popular figure, a popular um, public intellectual. Um, but when the with the rise of the student movement, his ideas started to really, I think, come in conflict with a lot of people's beliefs. But students really pushed back on this idea of having their lives engineered in this Mm -hmm. kind of way. Um, Interestingly, in the summer of 1964, um, Robert Moses, Bob Moses, uh, who... That Robert Moses? That Robert Moses, Uh um, who studied psychology at Hamilton College, had this idea. He thought, what if we used teaching machines as part of Mississippi Freedom Summer? What if we had these devices that promise... Efficiency promised people to you know learn more quickly at their own pace and use them with some of the adult literacy programs, but the idea of this engineered education, even one with these progressive political ends, really came into conflict with some of the beliefs of the freedom schools, which was not taking curriculum that was designed and engineered um, by uh, white. People from corporations in the
0: north—that uh, feels unsurprising.
1: <laughs> yeah, students. You know, I think when we see students push back on the contemporary, the sort of contemporary version of this, right? The kinds of teaching machines that promise personalized learning—that you know, Mark Zuckerberg, um, that the Facebook folks are building for Summit Public Schools. These are all teaching machines that really have a lot of the same promises. Students will be able to move at their own pace through the curriculum and. I think students are saying, no way, this is not, we don't, we don't want this kind of managed, engineered, scripted education, this language of 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 moving at your own pace and freedom and personalization. It's not personal at all. It's actually deeply impersonal. It's deeply isolating. So I think some people would tell the stories that teaching machines were just a flash in the pan. People were interested in them very briefly in the 1960s, but then computers came along and Nobody did teaching machines any longer. My argument is that teaching machines actually established both the technology and pedagogy that computer-assisted instruction really adopted.
0: These ideas about teaching and education are still around, and they're not going away. The best thing we can do is know their history, understand where they come from, and watch how they're applied. Eclipse is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Canyon-Meyer. We're produced by Tanita Rahmani, Lane Gerbig, and Joe Hawthorne. Allison Haney is our production assistant. Archival research by Caitlin Rathi. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael, the learning machine, Canyon-Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. Special thanks to Audrey Waters. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at pod And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm BijanCakes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.